Hello and welcome to the Sport for Business podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hartnett, and in today's show, we're bringing you the first of a short series of women in sport interviews recorded live at the Irish Film Institute at our 10th annual Women in Sport conference. Our Women in Sport partners are Lidl, who have been great champions of ladies football at every level over the past six years and will be long into the future as well. It was a great morning and one of the stars was a woman who has been a trailblazer in pressing the case for women being involved as players, administrators, match analysts and as president of the Camogie Association. Liz Howard is a tough cookie and does not suffer fools, so it was with a little trepidation that I welcomed her onto the stage, but I never need have worried. She had us all in the palm of her hand and I think you'll enjoy her take on Irish sport past, present and future. I have been looking forward to for a long, long time. When I began to think of this as being something of a retrospective as well as a look forward, uh, there was only one person that I had in mind because, as I said at the outset, she has been a trailblazer through this uh, for longer than most of us uh, have ever been engaged in sport. Uh, she was a camogie player. Uh, she was a footballer. She was a sporting person. She worked for Aer Lingus. She was the first female analyst on the Sunday game uh, who went into the studio not really thinking that she knew what she was going to be doing, but then just did it anyway. Uh, she has been a president of the Camogie Association. She has been a long-term advocate for sport and for women's sport. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please, your warmest round of applause for the afternoon for Liz Howard. time that great leaders do think of that. She said to me on the way up, she said, I hardly recognise myself. Well, the rest of us recognise you because you've lived a life so far and continuing long into the future in the public spotlight to an extent that women in sport just didn't exist. Let me take you back to those first days in the RTE studio and being that sort of, you know, that breakthrough analyst that, you know, who does this one think she is now? Can you imagine if social media had been around in those days? Um, how did it feel, like, from your point of view, for those who might be going through a similar one now? Did you just go in there, chest out, I'm here because I deserve to be here and this is going to be brilliant? Well, the interesting thing was, I suppose, I grew up in a family where my parents were involved in sport, but my father was unusual in many ways, we were, equality was never mentioned, but we were always equal. So I always carried that through. And when I was asked, I was actually asked to present the Sunday game. But I'd come back in from New York, I'd been over for a couple of days, and I went down to the studio, and I had no real idea of what they wanted, but I said, absolutely no. I wasn't ready for it. The Sunday game was starting the following Sunday, and this was a Tuesday morning. And I didn't want to make a fool of myself. And Mick Dunn, who was a great um, mentor of mine, rang me and said, will you, will you do analyst? I said, yes, I will. So I really felt, Rob, that I was only expressing the views of every other supporter who went to games. 
I follow sport, I love sport, and I knew my sport. So I actually had no concerns. Maybe I was a fool, but I had no concerns whatsoever. But there was no training. And now I was looking at Jim Carney, who was passionate about sport. And um, it just took off. Now, I'm sure there were lots of um, people saying, what's she doing on that? And I know some of them. But they kind of came round because they said, you know, you're not too bad. And I suppose that was a really good compliment from a lot of the men. But I enjoyed it. It was a great experience. It's a low enough bar, but men are men, so not too bad is actually. So Jesus great. It's quite good, yes, and I recognise that. And, and that wasn't the only male preserve that you were kind of crashing in through the door of at the time as well, because you were appointed as the county PRO for the Tipperary County Board. And the interesting thing, I was never asked, a man called Paddy Marr from Moneygall, Money who's long since dead, nominated me. I wasn't even there at convention. And the secretary, Tommy Barrett, who thought women had a place in the kitchen mainly, uh, rang me and said, you got a job. And I said, okay, I'd have to think about it because I was in Dublin. But the interesting thing again about a PRO, you can do that job from anywhere. And when I went down, you know, the executive should include the PRO, but they really didn't want me. So I said, there's no point in chasing that ball. I concentrate on the job I have. So I built up a really good relationship with all the clubs in Tipperary. And I still maintain that relationship. But above all, I was conscious you support the players. And with the senior board, it was from minor upwards. And to me, everything we do must support the players who are going to be on the pitch or the, wherever they are. And I got to know the players very well, and particularly the minor players. We'd meet them in the, in the beginning of the year. And I was talked about standards and how they behaved. And, how they represented Tipperary because there was nothing better in my mind than a blue and gold jersey. But I got to know the senior players very well and very often I think, you know, they confided in me as a woman because some of them probably saw me as a sister, some of them probably saw me as a mother figure. But they tell me things, if the romance was going badly or college was going badly or if they had problems maybe at home or whatever. And I was able to give that kind of support, but I loved the job. I really loved the job, and I suppose I had great relationships with other counties. And in Munster, a lot of the matches were held in Thurles, and I would have a very good relationship with Cork and Clare and Limerick, Waterford. Now, Kerry didn't feature very much, but I got to know them as well. And that stood to me then in later times. Everywhere I went, I was welcome. I was always very welcome. Great, I suppose, relationship with Cork in particular, which was interesting. And the late uh, president there uh, was very good to me. And the first time I went down to Cork as a child, he lifted me over the stiles. So I, that continued. And I had great relationships with Frank Murphy because Camogie in Cork hadn't that great relationship with the GA. And I approached Frank Murphy and I said, you know, why don't you let the women in here? We had a chat about it, and he did. And he was very supportive. And many people would have seen him as his anti-woman. I never did. Anti-woman is interesting because I've never met a misogynist who actually considered themselves to be a misogynist, first off. <laughs> um, nobody actually thinks that they're anti-woman. It's only by your actions do you reveal yourself. It's kind of hard to believe now for many of us 
given the fact that women have got a seat at the top table, they've got a place on the sidelines, they've got, uh, you know, they've got more or less full access to the whole wide range of sport. But back in those days, in the kind of, you know, the 80s and the 90s, you would have been one of the only women that was actually working in a professional capacity, even though you weren't being paid, there you go. Um, but that's that capacity. So how were you received? Obviously, from those that you knew, was fine but when you were when you were engaged in doing what you did you know within the men's sport within the hurling team with Babs Keating with all of those kind of you know sort of characters how were you perceived were you perceived as as a woman or were you Liz Howard something that was kind of separate to that you know it's an interesting thing being on the Sunday game kind of gave you an in as well false one because if you're involved in the media you're known so people may have this perception or oh, she's okay or she knows what she's talking about but then i went and i did my diploma in public relations as well and i set up things like weekly notes in the local papers sending in things um to the only station in tip fm at that stage but i worked through innn um on a national level i think they're no longer there and um most people, I got on well with them. I like people, and I see the best in most people. Now I see the worst in some as well, let me be perfectly honest. And we but, get to that. Uh, um, but I got on fine, really. But I worked as PRO. I would ring my chairman and secretary every day. But you can do your job very well, almost independently of others. And even though I was here in Dublin, which was an advantage in ways. So... I gradually built up my relationship, and as I say, I thought the clubs and the players were the most important, particularly the players. So they accepted me quite well. I'm sure I had a few that didn't like me, but that never bothered me. You, know, you, can't, you can't win all the battles. And if they did, you put them in their place anyway. And I don't bother anyone. It doesn't bother me. Good for you. Working as the PRO, that you can do that kind of on your own almost, that you can plow your own furrow. Talk me through then that sort of ascent to becoming president of the Camogie Association, because as a president, that's the complete opposite end of the scale, that that's embracing everybody and working with everybody to try and come along that common path. Is that something that you set your eyes upon and that you wanted to go for it, or again, is it something that kind of happened and you thought, yeah, we could do that? It kind of happened. And you know, when I was with Tipperary, I'd been involved in Camogie, and I was fixture secretary long before mobile phones, and I think that was my purgatory that I served, trying to get pitches, trying to get referees. Um, I'd been out of Camogie, apart from a spectator, and Miriam O'Callaghan, uh, my predecessor, who's become a really good friend, she was an extremely good president, she rang me and said, listen, I'd like you to come back in, um, I'm taking over as president, it's going to be our centenary year, and I'd like your help. I said, no way, Miriam, I could think of nothing worse. But she persisted until eventually I said, I'm not going to win this battle. So we worked very well together, very compatible. She was terrific, she put in a lot of very good structures. And then, I was only in three years, and somebody said, would you go for president? I said, mother of God, they'd probably throw me out. Um, would it be a popular thing to do? And there was only one other person nominated who had been a previous president. And um, eventually, 
I stood and I won. And it was kind of seamless, really, because Miriam had involved me in everything. And um, I loved it. I had difficult moments. I remember my first Oracola meeting. I had my committees set up. And that, that was my choice, but they had to be ratified by Oracola. And there was a battle. They wanted some particular people who had been there for years, and I felt we needed to freshen up things. I will remember it was in Vincent's uh, GA Hall, the Crook Park wasn't available, and the perspiration was running down my back. And I remember coming out saying, have I made a mistake? But that was my battle, and I won the battle. And that's the way I, I thought, what's best for the association? It's not for me, it's to progress Camogie, and I hope I did that. Oh, I think without a doubt, um, you did it, and it continues, you know, that legacy continues. Over 30,000 at the, at the Camogie All Ireland Finals this day, which was, you know, beating a record which was set, I think, when you were president of the 25,000 that was on. 25, but that was a combination of the, the under 21 final, which was a terrific idea, and I would always like to recognise Nicky Brennan, who would presently coincided with mine. And Liam O'Neill, who was then chairman of Leinster Council, they were extremely supportive. And Nicky was terrific, gruff enough in manner, but I got him to finance our big cup because we had a little small chalice, the O'Duffy Cup. And I rang him, he said, what do you want now? I said, I want money for a cup. Okay. I said, just send me an email. And then he gave us a grant of 100,000. And then he twinged the All-Ireland under 21 with the Camogie final. And he was terrific, and so was Liam O'Neill. And of course, they were both interested in, in integration and great advocates for women in sport. So I owe them a great debt of their cooperation and their support. You rarely hear Tipperary people speaking nicely of Kilkenny people, so it's nice you know that we something? get that. They're the best hosts at Corker as well. All the, all the counties are, I suppose, but Kilkenny are the best hosts if you go over there. My great friend, Ned Quinn, who was a former chairman, he was one of the people I would pick up the phone and say, I have a problem, I have an issue, I need an independent voice. And by God, did you get an independent view from Ned. He was terrific. And I go there regularly. I usually go to their county final. Didn't this year because it clashed with the tip hurling final. <laughs> Timetabling, should these things happen. Yeah. Um, you mentioned integration there. And it's interesting that integration and a closer working relationship was on the agenda, was on the cards, even if not spoken publicly at that time. And, uh, you know, in, in those presidencies, a, a few years uh, further back than, than we are now. Where we're at now, each of the Congress, both GAA, Ladies Football and Camogie, have passed 90% plus overwhelming, almost unanimous approval. Can't figure out why it's not unanimous that that we need to work closer together and we need to become one Gaelic Games family. Um, what's your view on how that's actually going at the moment? Because there are speed bumps along the way. Can I just go back a little? Joe McDonough, I suppose, was the president who really started the ball rolling, and we had a committee um, called Increased Participation, and I chaired that. And Helen O'Rourke was on it, obviously, and we had some very good people from the GA. And we did a lot of groundwork. We did surveys to see what was the percentage of women at club level, which was huge, from that was ladies' football and camogie. 
Now we then you see it's very much dependent on the president of the day. Some are supportive, some are totally indifferent, putting it mildly. And now we are, and I suppose we are now where we are because of Sport Ireland, who have been terrific over the years to Camogie in particular. And um, it's been forced upon us by, by, the, by, by the government, really. And I think it's a great idea. And if it comes, if it's rightly done, it will become a very powerful organisation. Because the GA isn't just in Ireland any longer. It's always been in the UK. But in the United States, in the East and the West Coast, in Australia, right across Europe, there's like a necklace around the world of the GA at this stage at Camogie and ladies football. Now it's serious business. And we have a steering committee with the three presidents, the three CEOs, and two project managers, and Mary McAleese as chair. So they're moving along. They're not telling us a whole lot, but I found out as much as I could. Um, they did a survey of all the county boards, respective county boards. Then they selected particular clubs, like the one club, like your own club is a one club. Then where you had single clubs of just one sport, and where you had camogie, ladies football, and hurling, and whatever, together. So they've got a lot of, I suppose, data at this stage. And in February, they're going to pu publish a report and they're going to have timelines and targets. But it's not simple, Rob. It's, you know, the big things are simple enough. It's the small, fine print that we never read when we get a guarantee. And I think, you know, the way it is, this is a three-way marriage. It's a bit like Diana and Charles. <laughs> but unlike Charles and Diana, there will be no divorce once this marriage takes place. And I think that's important to think that. So there's a way to go, and I would prefer to see it taken slowly and getting it right rather than a quick fix. And there are, you say, impediments. Finance. Nobody likes to part with money, and the GA won't like to part with money, and they are the major stakeholder here when it comes to finance. The other one is facilities. And that's a problem. Now, in my own county in Tipperary, we have been very lucky, I suppose, with the GA and particularly with Tim Floyd, who has just retired. There was always great cooperation. And in actual fact, back in the early 80s, the GA bought a pitch for ground for Tipperary Camogie and developed it. Now it's vested in the GA and it hosts a lot of matches, but it, it's not adequate. The same in Cork, they have their own pitch now, the same in Clare, the same in Galway, and I'm not aware of the other counties. But the facilities, I think, are going to be huge because there's so many grades in hurling and football, ladies football and camogie. You've got to be realistic that sometimes there will be problems. And of course, now you have to have dressing rooms. We, most clubs have dressing rooms. But, you know, do you need special ones for women? I think you do in many cases. As you say, the day of piddling in the ditches is long gone, not for women anyhow. Um, so there are the two things I see as the major, major impediments. And money is, is always going to be a thing that on, the, on that facilities. It's, there's a sense out there that actually it'll work because it has kind of worked. We've kind of muddled through and the championships get played at inter-county, at club, at, at provincial level. It gets done. Sometimes there can be some bumps along the way. 
But I think one of the challenges is going to be the fact that we have, by virtue of the success of Camogie and ladies football in particular, and all of the other sports, in terms of promoting the sport for young girls to play, Joe Keane, who's the chair of the Dublin Ladies Football Board, said to me on the side of the pitch, he's a Kerry man, I don't know what he's doing in Dublin, but he's doing a bad job. And that's what we're in Dublin. I know, I know, including the Brogans. But he said to me that the number of teams that were entered in the boys' minor football competition in Dublin this year was superseded for the first time ever by the number of teams that were entered in the girls' minor football competition. And that was one of those numbers that just kind of knocks you back on your heels and makes you think, actually, look, we've been so successful in terms of opening up sports to have young girls playing. But if there's that number of teams playing, we've effectively increased the number of teams by 50% across the Gaelic Games family. But we haven't increased the number of pitches and facilities there. So is that going to be the sort of the, the biggest challenge? Will we need to, to invest and build? Because we can't do this we can't do this wrong. We can't do this and just muddle through. We have to provide, if we're a united organisation, it has to be equal. Yes, and I suppose in Dublin, where land is so expensive now, it is a real problem, but it's a good problem in ways. Um, I see my own club, Burgess Johara, and you know, there are separate clubs, but there's a schedule. The pitches are for the Camogie players at all levels, certain days, and then for the hurlers. Now, football is kind of the minority sport in our club. But I look at Dublin, and I live near the Fina club, and I often hop up there to see matches. And the amount of people, and it's difficult. I was talking to Tom Ryan, who's um, one of their members, and who's now a guide in Coke Park, the museum. And he was saying, it's a, log a logistic nightmare to try and accommodate at club level so can you imagine at the county level then how, how difficult it is and it will in, require a big investment i think in terms of um, building extra pitches and a lot of clubs down the country now have second pitches it's more difficult in dublin talking to people to buy land is really really and what land is is available in particularly in the inner part the inner part of the cities i call it not too bad out in, in, in the hinterland. Yeah, not too bad, but not too good. But between, the, good. Canal, between the canals, it's, uh, it's yeah. atrocious. We've got, uh, you know, got a real, real challenge there. Yeah. But again, it's just it's a challenge of life. We, we, we just have to meet it. Um, I, I like the fact that you talked about this being a marriage with no divorce, like back in the yeah, bad old days of, of <laughs> Ireland. Uh, it's not that long ago. Um, are you optimistic? Like February is just around the corner. Yes, but I don't think we'll go to, to Congress until 2024 at the earliest. And I have no problem with that. Um, I am optimistic. Looking, I suppose, at sport, being involved in the GA and Camogie, the thing that needs to change is attitude. I've always believed in, in everything in life. If your attitude is right, everything falls into place. But at the recent GA Congress, Remember, 20% of them voted against integration. And I think there will be people in both ladies' football and in Camogie for definite who would, if they had the choice, would not go for integration. And yet the poll, of, or the online poll, was very much for um, the integration, and particularly from Camogie, which was interesting. But you know, I said we have male dinosaurs. We have female dinosaurs as well, and I know a few of them in Camogie. 
And that attitude has, if the attitude is right, I think it can make a huge, powerful organization. And it can only benefit with the attitude is the single biggest stumbling block. And that's something which can change. That's not something which is dependent on others. That's in our hearts and our souls and our minds. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Every each one of us can determine our own attitude. And I've seen people who have come around as well. And I am optimistic, but then I'm an optimist, and you know, an optimist and a fool are only very very slightly different. I know, history is written by the winners. Uh, we, we, we get there, I think. And, you know, I think you've covered it all. Um, and you've covered it all in so many ways, across a career and a life in sport that has always been about giving rather than taking. I think that's incredibly important. It has been an absolute joy and a pleasure to have you here on the stage with us today. And I'd just like to say it is terrific to meet people that I've never met before, and it's great to see some men here as well. And I hope you have done incredible work, been a real advocate. And I've had a great life in sport, and I love it with a passion, all sport. But I suppose being a Tipperary woman, my heart will always be with hurling and cooking. <laughs> <laughs> it that will. Won't, that won't stop it But you're also flying down to Malaga to watch the Davis Cup now live next week as well. So, like, but you know, but, the world but my boy isn't playing, the dad isn't playing, so my all-time favourite male international sportsman. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Liz Howard. I hope you enjoyed that. She really is a character who knows everybody and is always welcome along the corridors of power. It was great to bring her story to a live audience and now to you. You can subscribe to the Sport for Business podcast, which drops every Tuesday and Thursday across a wide range of sporting areas on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There are now more than 50 interviews to listen back to, including with CEOs, athletes, inspiring individuals, and more. If you like it, please feel free to spread the word and watch out for more live sessions coming up. Thank you so much, as always, for taking the time to listen in.